Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining me today on a freezing cold December here in New York. Today, we are talking about risk transfer in New York workers' compensation cases. And I'm going to cover a couple associated topics. First, if you're totally new to this topic, what is risk transfer? Next, which cases should I be thinking about obtaining risk transfer? Third, why do I want this? And how do I make sure I don't lose my opportunity to get reimbursement, right? Um, I'm gonna try to be as, as practical as I possibly can. I'm gonna talk about all throughout how risk transfer helps us reduce exposure in our workers' compensation cases, which of course is our goal. I'm gonna talk about our right to subrogate because the New York workers' compensation law does contain that right that we can individually assert. This is totally live. Um, I've, there is way more attendees than I thought even possible for December 19th, uh, as we all count down to the holidays. That's the second day of Hanukkah today, and we've got Christmas obviously this weekend coming up. I am blown away by how many people are here. So I'm presuming that there's gonna be a lot of questions about this topic. Uh, if you haven't joined us before for a webinar, uh, please type your questions in as we go, and I'll do my best at the end to answer every single question. I never say your full name. I'll just say your first name. I'll read your question aloud so that everyone will know what the question is, and then I'll do my very best to answer it. Um, if we do run out of time, and I have only really allotted an hour for this um, with questions, I will then email you back answers if I don't get to all the questions, but we typically do. All right, um, so please type your questions in as we go. It makes it a lot more fun for everyone. And also, if you're feeling a little silly, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask that question, it's too basic, please ask, because someone is probably sitting there watching the same webinar and just wish someone else had asked that question. Or they're watching these webinars recorded, which they are recorded and archived, and they had wished probably someone asked that same silly question. So please do that. Uh, it makes it uh, a lot more interactive and fun. All right. Now, we've had a lot of topics in this monthly training cycle about how we reduce exposure and what we focus on, right? So we've talked about safety prevention, light duty, light duty offers, things that are under the control of the employer. We've talked about medical best practices in two webinars on that in August and September. We've talked about um, limiting lost time and how we challenge lost time that's gotten out of control in our July webinar. Uh, we've talked about permanency evaluations, both scheduled loss of use and loss of wage earning capacity and how we set those up so that we can reduce our exposure in our cases. Uh, and we've talked all the time about our litigation strategies, how we use our credibility attacks uh, to reduce our exposure and you know the basic things that we're doing uh, while we're defending a case. But today's the first time we're gonna talk about this topic, which is risk transfer which is a huge opportunity for us to reduce exposure in our New York workers' compensation cases. In my case population, which at this point is in the thousands of cases, we have about 3,500 open cases here at Lois Law Firm, about 10% of our cases that we have identified have a strong risk transfer component. So about 10% of the cases that we're defending, and again, this is against uh, across all the different practice groups and all of our different client types. I mean, we're in every market, every industry. It seems to us about 10% of the cases, you're gonna have a strong opportunity for risk transfer. So this is not something that's rare or it doesn't apply in a lot of your cases. 10% of your cases, you're either getting all, most, or at least some of your money back. And that's why this is a topic that we should pay attention to. 
Now, first question in risk transfer, we're really saying, is there a potential action against some other tortfeasor who actually harmed my employee? Okay, who's the actual tortfeasor? Uh, my employee was driving around, they were struck by a drunk driver. Well, it's not my employee's fault that they were struck by the drunk driver, hopefully. Uh, it's someone else's fault. So who is that? Can we identify another actual tortfeasor, another pocket? The next question we want to ask is, did the claimant file their own civil action against that tortfeasor? Now, this can be a challenge in New York because remember, our statute of limitations in a workers' compensation case is only two years, and the statute of limitations for a civil action, most types of civil actions, not against public entities, is three years. And so what that happens is, what can result is someone's filed their workers' compensation claim and they're waiting or using the medicals in the workers' compensation claim to build up their specials or the, uh, the results they wanna put on the big board when they go in front of the jury. And so our, our case will be plodding along and uh, maybe even reaching a conclusion even before the civil action is being filed. So that's something to be mindful of. But the question is always, did the claimant file a lawsuit or could they? So the, when we're thinking about risk transfer, we're thinking, was it someone else's negligence that caused the harm to my employee. Um, when can we sh should we be considering this? What kind of cases? Well, I'm thinking slip and falls on someone else's property. I'm thinking most falls from height, construction accidents, right? Because generally speaking, they're gonna take place on someone else's premises. I'm thinking about motor vehicle accidents, and I'm also thinking about product liability cases. So what's our right to reimbursement? Uh, our right is, uh, uh, to reimbursement when the claimant has filed their own civil action against someone else, right? So we don't have to um, go into court. We don't have to file anything. We have an absolute right to reimbursement under Section 29 of the Workers' Compensation Law. And that uh, portion of the law, Section 21, 29, which gives us our reimbursement and, uh, by the way, our subrogation right, is called self-executing. What does it mean to be self-executing? It means that the law imposes an affirmative duty on the claimant should they file a civil action to take our reimbursement right into account. We don't necessarily have to do anything to assert our right to reimbursement. Again, that's because the law is self-executing. It places on the uh, plaintiff in the civil action the burden that A, if they're going to resolve their civil action, mean reach a settlement, uh, they have to get our consent to the settlement. And then B, if they do reach a settlement after our consent, they have to provide us with our reimbursement that we're entitled to under the statute. So in other jurisdictions that we defend cases in, we sometimes have to do something affirmative or positive in order to preserve our reimbursement right. But in New York, the right is uh, uh, granted to you and it is the uh, claimant or the plaintiff who bears the burden of making sure it's satisfied. So that's really good because it means it's very hard to accidentally waive your Section 29 right to either reimbursement or your Section 29 right to subrogation. So it's a great statute in that respect. Now, how do we preserve this right or how do we make sure this right is adequately represented? Well, when we intake a case, I have an intake department here, and they think about this in every single workers' compensation case we defend, hey, is there a potential for a third-party lawsuit? What we do here in our practice, and I think it is the best practice, is we try to put everyone on notice that we are expecting them to preserve and maintain our Section 29 right. 
And we do that by way of sending a letter to all parties, to emailing all parties. We're going to go into the civil docketing system. And we're going to identify all the named defendants. And we're going to make sure all of them and their attorneys are put on notice that, hey, should you try to resolve this matter, you've got to come to us first. Okay. Uh, so again, Section 29 is self-executing, but we do want to monitor that civil claim and you want to be thinking about how that's going to impact your case. And so we don't just sit back and say, oh, there's a Section 29 um, obligation that the plaintiff or the claimant has. You really want to be relatively proactive about monitoring that matter, making sure that all the parties are on notice as to who you are, because it's a lot easier. It's an ounce of prevention uh, is really going to save you a lot of time in the end, particularly where the claimant goes and settles around, that's the term, settles around us, by going to one of these civil defendants and accepting a settlement that they didn't either ask for our consent with or provide us reimbursement from. Now we have other problems. We've got to go into civil court, uh, New York Supreme Court, which is ironically its lowest level of court, and make sure that our right to reimbursement is preserved and protected. So New York's got a great civil docketing system. If you're familiar with eCase, it's similar to that. It's an electronic docketing system that you can access. It is open to the public, so you do not need to be an attorney to access the New York civil docketing system. And you can go in there and you can search by plaintiff name, by party name, or by index number, which is what New York calls a docket number uh, in the civil action. And you can determine whether or not a civil action is pending. Once you click through into the case, you'll be able to identify all of the parties and see who has been served. So that's very useful for identifying parties for us to contact or you to contact and say, hey, don't forget about my right to reimbursement. Now, we have this wonderful right to reimbursement. It's built into the statute, but how much do we get back? The answer is that if the third party award, that civil recovery, is greater than the payments we have already made, we get back everything that we've issued, less attorney's fees and costs. Also, please note that in this jurisdiction, New York, attorney's fees and costs are not capped, which means uh, if the attorney spent $50,000 on medical expert reports or witness fees, uh, that would be reduced from our recovery. Next. If the third party award is less than the payments we've already made, we get back everything we've already played, paid, plus we get a future credit going into the future. And finally, if the future benefits due are easily determinable, meaning in the workers' compensation case, uh, our lien can be reduced by the amount of future benefits avoided. And you will see this occur, for example, in a scheduled loss of use case where it's very simple, there's a capped number of weeks and it's clearly identifiable exactly how much future money we're going to have to uh, pay for the claimant. So in that case, your lien could be reduced uh, proportionately by the amount of the civil recovery. How do we maximize reimbursement? It's great, the statute's useful and helpful to us and it's self-executing. How do we make sure we get the most amount of money back? Well. My opinion is always wait for an offer in the third party action. When your adversary starts contacting you in, this, in the workers' compensation case saying, hey, will you accept less than maybe your full potential reimbursement? I'm trying to settle the civil action, but before I do, I wanna make sure that uh, I can maximize the recovery to my plaintiff. Of course, that's who the person they have a duty to. Would you accept uh, to reduce maybe your workers' compensation reimbursement amount by 50%, right? They'll start making these requests of you. Um, 
my advice is always no don't please don't negotiate against yourself please don't bid against yourself please say oh well you know what I'll tell you what go get some offers or get an offer and then bring it back to us and then I'll talk to you about whether I want to compromise my reimbursement amount um, be prepared of course to handle that common threat we get which is abandonment I've had uh, claimants attorneys call me up and say Greg this case, the civil action, it's only worth a million dollars. It's it's a it's garbage. Uh, I'm gonna I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna go after that. It's so much work. The only way this will make sense, I mean, you've already paid him six hundred thousand dollars in the workers' compensation matter, is if you cram down or reduce your amount. Otherwise, the claimant's only gonna get fifty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars or some number that's really low. And if you don't waive or reduce your reimbursement amount, uh, I'm not going to be able to settle that civil action. And they'll threaten you that they're going to abandon it. They'll say, oh, there's no money moving. The, the, the plaintiff's so upset and annoyed. Now, let me tell you something. I've been at this for 21 years. I have never seen a plaintiff's attorney abandon a valid uh, civil action where money was going to move. It just never happens. Even if no new or fresh money moves to the plaintiff, and that's because the amount we paid out in the workers' compensation claim, for example, vastly exceeds what their recovery is in the civil action, they're still, of course, going to go and pursue that because that's where they get their attorney's fee. I've never seen an attorney voluntarily waive a fee. Okay, That's just not a thing that happens. So when you hear the threat of abandonment, just understand that that is completely and totally made up, and that's not going anywhere. Um, finally, uh, sometimes I hear uh, claimants, attorneys, who will contact my client directly, right? And they'll say, hey, are you willing to uh, reduce your reimbursement amount or your subrogation lien? They'll say, you know, let's call it all different things. Because uh, in this jurisdiction in New York, we always do a third, a third, a third, right? Of that total settlement, a third will go to the claimant, a third will go to me, the attorney, and you'll get a third back, right? So essentially, they're cramming down or reducing or asking us to compromise on the amount of our reimbursement. And they'll say there's a third, a third, a third rule of thumb here. We always do that in New York. That is a lie, okay? There is absolutely no consensus on this whatsoever in New York. I never say to anybody, yeah, sure, we do a third, a third, a third. Now, of course, there are some minor little piddly cases where you just go, okay, maybe, or my client says, Greg, let's just do a third, 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 let's get this thing closed and get the money back, fine. But you never have to consent to that, and I never recommend it. Right? You should always be getting back more than a third, That's uh, unless there's some reason to. Um, the last thing I'm going to mention uh, when you maximize reimbursement is getting a little involved in that civil action can be useful. And, and this comes up in a couple different ways. Um, first, uh, in my complex practice, our, um, primarily it's our construction cases, there's almost always a third-party action pending in association with one of our construction accidents that we're defending. And so it's become a regular practice for my partner and the practice group leader, Tashia Razul. She goes to the mediations in the civil matter. And the reason she does this is because so often that at that mediation, an issue comes up about, hey, what's the amount of the workers' compensation lien? Or how much are we going to be asked to reimburse? Or what's the impact of this or that that happened in the comp case? And so what we've discovered is it's incredibly useful to be there in the mediation because we can explain what goes on in the workers' compensation court, have the types of settlement, what is a no money moving settlement, how is that going to impact this case, um, even issues like where to put the set aside, right? Whether or not the set aside is funded by the civil action 
for the workers' compensation action. Those are big issues and you could save some money. I'll tell you why. In our workers' compensation cases, when I put money into a set-aside, I refuse to pay a fee on money that I put into a set-aside in a, in a workers' comp case. But the opposite holds true in civil actions. In most civil actions, the plaintiff's attorney is going to demand a fee on the money that's put into the set-aside to satisfy Medicare's secondary payer obligations. So that's an area where, again, um, you know, getting counsel involved can be useful in terms of getting the best total possible outcome. The other thing that is um, useful is I've actually had to step in sometimes and guide plaintiff's attorneys as to how best to present their case. I've had plaintiffs that said, oh, this case, Greg, is only worth 100 grand. And I called them up and I said, look, you've got an accident case. Here's the expert that I've seen in, in some of these recent cases, did a really good job, writes a better report. Why don't you use them, right? So we're not uh, adversarial, for example, or oppositional to them in their third-party civil action generally, right? So if the more they recover, that's the more money that's going to come back to reimburse my client. And so for that reason, I have no problem trying to give them a little guidance of advice or push them in a certain direction so that they can recover the maximum, okay? Now, the question that always arises is, Greg, can we subrogate in New York? And the answer is yes, I do. We have a subrogation department here, and I've got an attorney who pursues these all the time. Uh, let's talk about whether I like to or not. I don't really like to uh, because, and I'll speak about the ethical issues that are involved. But first, we have the same right and limitations as the plaintiff in bringing a subrogated action under Section 29 in New York. And you certainly can subrogate. And what a favorable and easy jurisdiction this is for plaintiffs. Again, with that long three-year statute of limitations, it's you've got plenty of time to make your decisions and do your investigation. Now, do I like to subrogate? The answer is generally not. I don't like to be in one court, in the workers' compensation court, adverse to the claimant. And then in a different court, the civil court, on their side. It can lead to situations where I might have to say differing things about the same claimant. Obviously, in workers' compensation court, I'm saying they're fine, they're ready for the Olympics, they're MMI, and they have minimal residual disability. But then I put on my subrogation hat and I go into the civil action and I am making an argument in a different court saying they're not fine and they are due $3 million. That is the recovery that is necessary to compensate my carrier. Now, did you see what I just did there? I'm saying two different things in two different courts. I don't like doing that. The second thing I don't like doing is representing a claimant when I'm only representing a part of their interest. Because when we subrogate a case in New York or any other jurisdiction, my duty is still to my client, which is you, not to the plaintiff. My duty is to get the maximum amount I can so that my reimbursement um, entitlement under Section 29 is satisfied. Not to get the maximum amount of money, for example, for pain and suffering for the claimant. So if their civil action is worth $10 million, but my workers' compensation outlay is only $2 million, I'm only seeking the $2 million back because the extra $8 million doesn't help me, right? And so for that reason, when we um, have to subrogate, I'll step in and I'll send a letter to, to the claimant. I'll say, you understand that I am going to be subrogating this action because you do have a third a right to bring a, a case against a third-party tortfeasor and you appear to not be doing that. Now, when I say that to them, I'm also telling them, please understand that my duty is not to you, it is to my client, and it is my goal to obtain a sum sufficient 
to reimburse my client, which may be significantly less than the maximum amount you'd be entitled to. When I send that letter to plaintiffs, uh, to the plaintiff or the, the claimant in the workers' compensation action, what do you think they do? The answer is they go and get their own attorney, right? They go and find some attorney that advertises on a bus stop bench uh, or during daytime TV, uh, and they hire them to represent them. And I'm actually happy about that. I'm happy because A, they're gonna absolutely go out and try to maximize that recovery, and B, my client's not paying for it. Because when I subrogate, I'm time and expense. I don't do contingency work here ever, right? So this is more efficient for my clients as well. It's been our experience that in the vast majority of cases that we've attempted to subrogate, the vast majority of the claimant has then gone and secured counsel on their own, which again is the goal. It's why we do it. It's to trigger that response. So what can we subrogate? Um, any claim against any potential tortfeasor? Um, we can even uh, subrogate sort of attenuated claims. So let's say the claimant in a workers' compensation case is unfortunately harmed by one of the treating physicians that they've selected. Now, do they ever select good treating physicians in a workers' comp case? No, why would you? Uh, you want someone to keep you out of work forever. But sometimes they do surgeries or they uh, sew people up and they leave the forceps in there or the sponges or who else knows what else. And the claimant would then have a legal malpractice case against the uh, medical treatment provider. Well, we can certainly subrogate that medical malpractice case, right? And there's case law on it and we've actually done it. We can also see contribution from the employer in grave injury situations, which of course should be relatively rare. New York does have a notice requirement when we are going to subrogate. 30 days prior to me filing my action, I have to put the claimant on notice that I'm going to do it, which is why you don't wait until the expiration of the statute of limitations uh, to bring your subrogation action. You've got to always file it at least 30 days before that. You've got to provide access. Um, now, once we've made a payment of compensation, of course, we have that right now to subrogation, we have to give the claimant the appropriate amount of time, right? And it's either one year after the loss or six months from the first payment of workers' compensation. So you've given them time to go to the market and to find that wonderful attorney who advertises on bus stop benches and during daytime TV. Um, last thing. Uh, you have to include this warning language and we really go over the top with ours to make sure the um, injured worker knows we're not really here to maximize your recovery. I'm really here to maximize my, cl my client's recovery and that's it. Once I get their money, I'm no longer interested in this case or you and that really is a trigger warning that lets them know, hey, maybe I should be getting my own attorney. What are the limits? Um, uh, to subrogation? Well, the main limit is you cannot subrogate against an insurance first party benefit. Um, no recovery, for example, against their own uninsured motorist policy uh, or their own underinsured motorist policy. But where the employer has the policy, you certainly can bring that subrogation action. Now, uh, there are rules under Section 5105 of the insurance law that talk about a carve out, which is a uh, $50,000 carve out. And that is for, again, uh, the, under, um, the first party motorist benefits that are under every single policy. Uh, we also must wait one year plus 30 days. I've just already talked about that. You gotta give them a chance to go to the market and find their own attorney. And then you've gotta give them a warning. Hey, I'm gonna do this. And that's 30 days before you file your action. We talked already about the problems of subrogation. Didn't mention this big one, which is the cooperation of the claimant. 
is the claimant going to be relatively cooperative with me in a subrogated action? Generally not. Generally, they're very difficult to marshal and get their um, uh, participation. Also, I would tell you, again, the ethical issues that counsel steps into are not pleasant, so you really want to be thoughtful about it. The majority of the cases that we are subrogating at this time, and it's in the dozens, um, we are not representing the same carrier in the workers' compensation matter. So really, there is a, a line there, but it's something to be mindful of. Um, there is also a lot of difficulty when the claimant's unrepresented. They're pro se in the workers' compensation case, right? Uh, they don't have an attorney. And now, and, and maybe there's a reason for that. They're crazy. Their case isn't good, right? There's not a lot of um, potential value in it, so maybe an attorney won't represent them. And maybe the, there, there is value in the third-party action or potential recovery in that action. Uh, and now we have to step in and start communicating directly with someone who's literally unwillingly become our client. Again, very problematic from those um, uh, uh, perspectives. All right, so uh, before we get to questions, and questions are next, so if you haven't typed it in yet, please type. Let's just talk about some handy-dandy takeaways from today's presentation. First, there is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. Uh, again, this is like, uh, sometimes it's brought up like it's gospel for, to, for, to you from plaintiff's attorney, and they'll say, well, this is how we always do it. Um, you know, my friend uh, Chris Major, uh, who runs our subrogation department over here, will tell you things like, hey, Greg, whenever um, opposing counsel says to me something like, well, I've been doing this for 50 years, and this is what we do, and then explains to me what how they want the law interpreted or the rules interpreted, I always know what they're telling me is basically BS, because I've never seen a point heading in a legal brief say, I've been doing this for 50 years, comma, judge, so you should agree with me. It just it's just crazy. You know they're trying to bluff you, essentially. And really, there is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. If this is the only takeaway you get from today, please, I'm glad that's useful for you. Um, when you're making your reimbursement demand, there really should be some assessment of the litigation risk. Like, how good is that case uh, that's pending? How likely are they to prevail? And generally, what do those cases go for in this jurisdiction? Uh, feel free to give us a ring if you're not sure, hey, what is an ankle injury worth? Um, you know, construction site ankle injury, for example, in New York is worth in the millions. That's a, a fractured ankle. In other jurisdictions, it might be much less. So really be mindful about um, the inflated values that we have in this jurisdiction uh, and be thoughtful about that when you're considering wh whether you're going to waive or not waive your right. And then the validity of an underlying claim. How, how good are their proofs? Where are they in discovery? Have they filed their RJI, request for judicial intervention yet? Is the thing going to trial? Are they, have they, are they settling too early? Are they not getting enough money? Remember, you can withhold your consent and say, no, that's not enough money. And you should be have some reasons or some preparation as to why. Our plan here is always, every case that comes in, uh, to be really evaluating and thinking about third-party reimbursement potential early. And then I do want to put every party on notice that I can so that I can maximize our recovery and make sure we're all communicating as that civil action is progressing. All right. Still a lot of people here. We didn't have a lot of drop-offs, so that's good. So now I'm going, to I'm going to flip over to the question and answer pane. I'm hoping there's a lot of good questions, and uh, usually this is a good topic for that. So let's see. How is this possible? We have this many people and no questions. 
Uh, maybe I talked too fast. Did I not give them enough warning about questions? I did. I did. All right. Uh, I'm not seeing any, so um, I guess uh, either this was uh, straightforward or you guys are wizards, uh, or it's the week before Christmas and uh, everybody's got some shopping to get to and finish up. Uh, I won't see you before Christmas. Um, our next webinar is on medical provider claim defense in New Jersey, which is Tuesday, December 27th. So have a wonderful remainder of your Hanukkah and have a great Christmas. And uh, for those who are just subscribed to this New York webinar, I'll see you next year. It's been great. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.